0: And again, I would like to ask you to turn your your Bibles to Romans, the 8th chapter, Romans chapter 8, and we will read together verses 28 through 30. We will be focusing on verse 29, however. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Well, as I said before, this passage of Scripture, I'm sure, in the hearts of many of us, is very near and very dear. Many of us, I'm sure, throughout our lives at one time or another have taken refuge in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, knowing that all things work together for good to those who love God. We may not understand what the good is at certain times, and there's a sense in which the good, by way of context, may escape us, but I want you to see from this passage of Scripture that the good is ultimately your and mine conformity to Jesus Christ. The whole purpose, the whole good and everything that God is doing in our lives, the inexplicable things, the things that we can understand, are all designed to bring us into closer conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you with that truth this morning. And the challenge I want to set before you is essentially this. Can you say that that good of Romans chapter 8, 28 and 29 is the good that you embrace when you understand that passage in, in verse 28? That the good there is not just things working out to my favor. The good there is my conforming to who Jesus Christ is. Where the Father through the Spirit and through the Word is working in me and working through me what Christ intends for me to be. When it's all said and done, what else is there? When it's all said and done that Christ be glorified. Is this not the desire of the people of God? And this is my friend's The focus and the calling of the Christian church. What I want you to see here this morning is essentially this. That the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, and this church of Jesus Christ in particular, Nosset Baptist Church, is called and gathered by God the Father in order to give preeminence to Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which your mission statement is clearly laid out for you. Your purpose in life is to glorify Jesus Christ. Your purpose in life is to find out the ways that God has gifted you, the talents that God has given you, and how those gifts and talents can all flourish in giving honor and glory to Jesus Christ. For some of you, that may take on very large things, things that some of us would look at and say, how could a person ever accomplish such such things? You may be gifted and called to that. For others of us, it may be very small and from the eyes of the world, relatively insignificant things. But in the eyes of God, it's the very purpose for which you were brought into the church of Jesus Christ. The very purpose for which you were called out of a world of sin. And so what I hope to do this morning then is to set before you this great passage of scripture. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29. That it is the purpose of God that in the church of Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ had the preeminence. Mm -hmm. Now, the way this passage of Scripture or the way the preeminence of Jesus Christ is set before us in this passage of Scripture is under the concept or with the idea of Jesus Christ as the firstborn. Now, again, this idea of firstborn is is a very important theological idea, but it's used in a number of ways in Scripture. In five places in the New Testament, it is specifically referred to Jesus Christ as the firstborn. Firstborn. And in each of those five places, there are different points of emphasis, different points of nuance. But overall, what we see in every one of these five passages is that there is in Jesus Christ a priority that is given. There is in Jesus Christ a preeminence that that attends his person in his office. But we do see in the scripture that the term firstborn is used in what we would call a very natural way. And what we would say this is that the normal or natural use of the term first, firstborn is a way in which we all understand. It's oftentimes used as the firstborn of a woman, that one who was the first of other children to come. This is even used, by our, this is even used in reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. When it's said of Mary that she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. We read in other places in the scripture where the word is used in that very normal sense. There's another way that the scripture uses this term firstborn, and this is what we would call a cultural sense. And in the time in which the Bible was written, you probably know this, that the firstborn had something of an exalted status within the family. Not by way of of the firstborn being better, but by way of responsibility and by way of calling. The firstborn was given a double portion, and that double portion wasn't just out of mere favor. That double portion was given in order to take care of the responsibilities that he had over the household after the passing of the father. So we have the natural sense of the word. We have the cultural sense of the word. But there's also the religious sense of the word. And this is kind of interesting. Because we see in a number of places in scripture where Israel as a nation is called God's firstborn. And what we see here is not that, the, it's not that Israel was the first created nation. As a matter of fact, we know that there were nations in existence before the people of Israel came into existence. But what it means is God's specific favor upon Israel among the nations of the world. So that when God looks among the nations of the world, he sees in his people, the descendants of Abraham, those ones that he refers to as his firstborn. That's the religious sense of the word. But the theological sense of the word is most important because that's where we draw our attention to the person of Christ. And in this emphasis on the theological use of the word, what we have is Christ having preeminence. Christ having the place of honor, Christ having this place where everything in one sense is focused on him. So that when Christ is called the firstborn among many brethren, the idea is essentially this, that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of those who are now the brethren of Christ himself. And in that community of believers, one person has preeminence. And that one person is Jesus Christ himself. And what we're going to see in this 8th chapter, the 29th verse, is that what God is doing through the great redemptive acts, the redemptive acts of foreknowledge, the redemptive act of foreknowledge, foreordination or predestination, the the sanctifying act of conforming you and me to Jesus Christ is all with the aim of having in the church Christ exalted among his brethren. And so what I want to do is I want to open up each of these points to you. And I want you to see and understand by the grace of God uh, what the design of God is in each of these things. And I would say this even as we go any further. The design of God in each of the redemptive acts. Foreknowledge, predestination, sanctification, or our conforming to Christ. The design of God in each of these acts is to give to his son the place of honor and exaltation in the church. And since that is God's design, it must be our design. That in everything, and especially everything in the church, Christ is to be exalted. Well, what is... The first, uh, what is the first uh, redemptive act that we see here in the passage of scripture? Well, look here again in verse 29 of what we see. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, if if you have been in the church of Jesus Christ for any length of time, you know that we have just entered into a passage of scripture where a whole lot of ink has been spilt. A passage of scripture where there has been a whole lot of discussion. What is the Apostle Paul talking about? And if I can say this to you, I'm really not going to enter into the details of all the theology here, but I am going to make some theological points that are going to be very significant to the way we understand this passage of scripture. And what I want you to see primarily in this first redemptive act, when we talk about God's foreknowledge, or I should say it this way, when the scripture makes use of God's foreknowledge, one of the things that we have a tendency to do, and it's understandable, is that we think of foreknowledge just as that word comes to us, knowledge beforehand. Oftentimes we overlook the fact that with God there is, in one sense, no knowledge before. God has all knowledge, comprehensive knowledge, in that moment, if we can use the term, of eternity. So with God, in one sense, there's no before, no after. But we understand what is meant by this idea of knowing before. It talks about the the reality that before time, we might say, and there was this knowledge. Another thing that we often do uh, when we come to this term foreknowledge is that we, we limit it, if I can put it that way, we limit it to what we might call the mere knowledge of facts. i want to suggest to you two cautions along these lines. The first thing I want you to see from the passage of Scripture here in verse 29 is that what we have here is a knowledge not so much of facts, it's not what God foreknew, but rather it's a knowledge of persons, thats whom God foreknew. You see, the knowledge here is not so much, as I said before, a knowledge of bare facts. It's a knowledge of persons. And this leads us to the second point, which is very important and very, very much impacting the passage itself. Because as we consider the word knowledge, as we see it in the scriptures, and this becomes one of the key points here, that as we see it in the scriptures, oftentimes knowledge is spoken of as a designation of a relationship between persons. We find this over and over again. We know from the scriptures that Adam knew his wife Eve. We read in other places where a husband knowing his wife has all the connotations of that wonderful intimacy of relationship that takes place. And that there is a sense that when we talk about the foreknowledge of God, it is not apart from that aspect of personal relationship. And so the foreknowledge here is not a mere or bald foreknowledge of facts. It's a foreknowledge of persons who, are, who in the sight of God, God is intended to enter into a relationship with. That's why it says whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew. And so what God is doing in this first great redemptive act is he is setting his love, a love of intimacy, a love of knowledge. But most of all, a love of redemption upon certain people. And who are those people? Well, we have to go back to verse 28 here. Notice again, you know what verse 28 says. We know that all things work together for good. And here's the identifying mark to them that love God. I I have to ask you a question this morning. Do you love God? You know, there was a time in which I was almost, I hate to say it this way, but I was almost reluctant to say that I love God. Not because I didn't want to say, not because I didn't love God or I didn't want to say that I love God. But but if I can put it this way, I knew myself. I know myself. I I think you know what what I'm trying to say, right? Sometimes it's difficult to say in all sincerity and honesty before God, Father, I love you. But then I read in the Psalms where the psalmist says, oh, how I love the Lord. And it's right and proper for the people of God, even with all of our failures, to say we love God. And so I ask you the question again, my brothers and sisters, do you love God? Because again, these are the ones who are foreknown and your love for God is the reflex of your soul for God's love for you. We love him because he first loved us. And so again, in this whole idea of what this foreknowledge is, it is not apart from the idea of redemptive love. So the first great redemptive act that we see in God setting apart a body in this world wherein Christ will have the preeminence is first to set his love upon them from eternity. The second redemptive act is that great word or that great act of predestination. And the predestination, excuse me, and the foreknowledge is that love that God has for individuals' predestination or foreordination. Is God's determination to bring about a certain end and the means to that end. If the end in this passage of Scripture is that Christ be the firstborn among many brethren, God has also ordained the means by which there would be brethren among whom Christ would be exalted. And so what God is doing and what God has done throughout human history is he has ordained the way of salvation. And that way of salvation is made clear to us in the Scripture over and over again. In the Old Testament, it was given to us in pictures. What a bloody picture it was. So it was hard sometimes to fathom visually what it must have been like on the Day of Atonement. Blood was shed, blood was shed, blood was shed. Why? Because apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And all these lambs and all these, and, and all the sacrifices that were made, what were they intended to do? Ultimately, they were intended to picture for us and prepare our hearts and minds for that Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. Mm-hmm. And so that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is that Lamb of God who makes himself available for the sinners of the world. And if you are here this morning understanding the depth and the reality of your sin, there's a Lamb for you. God has provided a lamb for you, and that lamb willingly went to the cross in order to shed his blood. That's the foreordained way of salvation that God has given. This is why why it says in the the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. This is why the Church of Jesus Christ is insistent on this exclusive yet inclusive message. What do I mean by that? It is exclusive as to the means of salvation. It is inclusive as to the way of salvation. Come, sinners come of every stripe and of every color, come. I don't care. And if you ever hear these people that tell you, oh, I don't want to go to church because I'm afraid the church, I'm, I'm afraid the, the roof's gonna fall down. Those are just the kind of sinners God wants to save. He came to call sinners and not the righteous to repentance. And so, again, this ordained way of salvation that God has laid out, again, is made clear for us here. And so this is what God is doing. He is ordaining uh, this way of salvation. You know, along these lines, when we consider what this is all about, when we consider uh, what the uh, what the nation of, of God is in this matter, we cannot overlook the fact that, again, from the context of Romans uh, 8, it really does have a very personal application to us. I I don't in any way want to take away from you this passage, if I can put it that way. I want you to use this passage in all of your difficulties and all your hardships. Yes, you can say that all things work together for good to those who love God, understanding the passage correctly in its context. I do want you to see, however, if I can put it this way, what God's design is in that 29th verse. We know in Romans 8, all the way through Romans 8, we are, in one sense, on the mountaintop of all of God's revelation. Very, not, many, not many higher peaks in the Bible than Romans 8. Ephesians 1 is up there. That passage in Revelation 5 that we read, phenomenal. Uh, but not many higher peaks than, uh, than uh, Romans chapter 8. And the reason why is because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is dealing with that great conflict that we often have as we walk through this world as believers in a hostile and unbelieving world. And Paul reminds us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No condemnation. Oh, what, what a balm that is to the soul. No condemnation. Yes, here I am. Here you are struggling with sin, thinking and fighting sin all along and thinking, how can a holy God ever accept such a sinner? You heard what John Newton said one time, didn't you? I think many of you may have heard this. Three things that will amaze him when he gets to heaven. He says the first thing is he'll be surprised that there are people who are there who I never thought would be there. (laughs) Secondly, he says he'd be surprised that there are people who should be there who who will not be there. He says, but the third and greatest surprise, he says, he says is that I will be there. And that's God's amazing grace, isn't it? That you and I will be in the presence of God Almighty. And it's not because of us. In the context of this passage of scripture, it's because of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And what God has foreordained is essentially this, that there be a way of salvation and that Jesus Christ be an elder brother within the church. Now, this is phenomenal. We probably do not give as much emphasis to Jesus Christ as our elder brother uh, than we ought, but it's found in a number of places in the scripture. I think that one passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 2 I think it's verse verse 11 and 12 where we have that little phrase, wherefore, referring to Christ, he is not ashamed to call us or call them brethren. Christ is not ashamed to call you brother. Christ is not ashamed to own you. Christ is not ashamed of who you are or what you have done because by the grace of God and through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are now one of his own. You are his brother. What a wonderful thing. Again, so many ways that we can illustrate this, uh, so many ways in which we can think of how in the lives of individuals, their lives become such a wreck that their families are ashamed of them. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot to get to that point, doesn't it? It takes a lot to get to that point. But we know that that's what sin and that's what bad choices and that's what, that's what happens sometimes. But Christ will never be ashamed to call those who own him as Savior. He will never be ashamed to call you brethren. Mm-hmm. You may have the reproach of the world upon you. You will never have the reproach of Christ upon you. Mm-hmm. Christ not ashamed to call you brethren. So you see, it's all these things that lead us to this idea that what God is doing in these redemptive acts, he is is calling out a people, He he is bringing a people to himself in order that his son, the one who he loves particularly, the one that he has a particular love for, his son may have an exalted position in the church of Jesus Christ itself. Now this is an important point in the day and age in which we live. Because there is a sense in which we would understand the the present uh, position of our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is called sometimes the session of Christ, whereby he is ruling and reigning. We don't see the manifestation, the open manifestation of his rule, though, do it? But we ought to see the open manifestation of his rule within the church. And if we do not see the open manifestation of the rule of Jesus Christ in the church, something is fundamentally amiss in the church at large or a particular church where that's not happening. And sadly, it is happening where it's not Christ who has preeminence. Sometimes, as we saw in our study in 3 John, individual men take the place of preeminence. Sometimes there are ideas that are current with society at time that take the preeminence. Sometimes there are, there are thoughts, and again, there are these philosophies of life that have preeminence rather than the simple gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Simple as that. Wonderful as that. And so you see... All these things working together to give to us an awareness of our, of our brotherhood, not just in the human sense of the term, but in the adopted sense. Now, theologically, Christ is our elder brother, and as such, he is to have the preeminence. Well, one more, um, one more redemptive act that we see. We, we have the redemptive act of, uh, of, uh, of foreknowledge. We have the redemptive act of, of predestination. The next act that we see is maybe what we might call, more, more uh, in a better way, not so much a redemptive act, but a sanctifying act. And that's where we see Paul saying in this 29th verse, For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. My Christian friends, again, this is the great pattern of living. If I can put it this way, this is the mirror that we are to look in every day. We're not to look in the mirror, so to speak, and just see how do we look. We're to look in this mirror and see how do we look in comparison to the person of Christ. Now, again, of course, we we, we almost shrink back from that. But you have to understand that it is God's purpose and design by way of Scripture and by way of the work of the Holy Spirit to make you more like Christ. And if you fail, don't shrink away. There is a God who loves you, who brings you back into the fold, who cleans you off and sets you back on your way. And so that's what God is doing. This idea of being conformed to the image of Christ, it basically means to be made like. That's your pattern. I don't know who your hero is in this world. I don't know who your examples are that you follow. And again, we see in this life that there are many people that are in some respects, we emulate them. But these all pale in the insignificance for the Christian who understands that he or she is called to be conformed to the image of the Savior. To be conformed to the ever-blessed Son of God. Now this conformity of Christ takes place in probably three ways. Maybe more than these, but at least these three ways. Number one, this conformity takes place in regard to suffering. Suffering. The Savior who brings you to heaven was a suffering Savior. The Savior who intercedes for you now was a suffering Savior. The Savior who saved you was made perfect through suffering. Christ made perfect through suffering. Much to be said and understood there, but suffering is a reality that the Christian, if he or she seeks by way of design, to exclude from their understanding of the Christian life doesn't know what the Christian life is all about we have passages of scripture over and over that bring us to this attention to our attention right here in Romans chapter 8 verse 17 and if children then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if so be we suffer with him that we also may be glorified together now, Romans 8, there's that other passage of Scripture where Paul says, For I am convinced that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, present sufferings are incomparable to future glory. All oh, Christian, embrace it. Don't let Satan influence you wrongly as to what suffering is or isn't. Understand that God not only calls you to suffering, but will bring you through suffering. And in that suffering will conform you and I more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's why I challenged you earlier with the whole Romans eight twenty eight passage. Can you rest at ease with a God whose ultimate purpose is to conform you to Jesus Christ? That's the good. The good isn't, hey, everything's working out great. Everything's coming up roses. Couldn't be any better. And a lot of times the people of God do have that experience, right? I've talked to some of you and said, Lord, I, I can't take any more blessing than bless so much. Well, God does that at times, doesn't he? But there are also seasons of suffering that we have to be aware of. Other passages of scripture bring the same thing out. Philippians 1.29, very important passage in many respects. Philippians 1.29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. For it is you, for, for, for it is given you, it is given you, not only to believe, what an interesting passage of scripture that is your faith whatever whatever else it is by way of your own personal movement of your soul and mind toward the person of jesus christ your faith in some way shape or form is a wonderful gift that god has placed within your soul value that gift don't let the world run roughshod over that gift That gift, which sometimes you can't explain, that gift, which sometimes is inexplicable, that gift, but that you know that you have, you know, for whatever else, whatever other reason, happening, something, whatever this world throws your way, it seems to be unable to shake you off of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the faith that is the gift of God, and in this passage of scripture, it is not only given you to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for His name. The Church of Jesus Christ. A suffering church. The church of Jesus Christ. A church being conformed to its Lord and Savior in and through their sufferings. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, listen. It is a great blessing not to be afflicted with suffering. And you and I need to thank God for those days when suffering and affliction is not upon us. There's nothing wrong with thanking God for that. There's nothing wrong for enjoying the gifts of freedom from suffering that God may be bestowing upon you right now. But if in your overall design of what the Christian life looks like, you purposely exclude the concept of suffering, you don't know what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life by design involves the idea of suffering. Why? Because it is in and through suffering that God conforms us to the image of his son. God wants you to be conformed to his son. If I can put it this way, because he loves his son so much that he wants to see something of his son in each and every one of us. What a way to look at salvation. So oftentimes we think God loved me so much. And he does. God so loved the world. Get drunk in the love of God, if I can put it that way. Be infatuated with it over and over again. But understand when it's all said and done, what God desires to see, He wants to see something of His Son in each and every one of us. And so it's through these sufferings that God is conforming us to the image of Christ. But that leads... So I said, like I said before, this conforming to the image of Christ is not only a conformity in His sufferings, it's also a conformity in what we would call His moral character. Now, in one sense, we know that we cannot be fully like Christ in the holiness of his person by way of his divine nature, by way of the sinless imperfection of his person. But there can be a moral conformity to his life. You and I can seek to live in this life the way our Savior lived in this world. You and I can see and understand that God has called us to holiness and the pattern of holiness is Jesus Christ himself. So there's conformity to Christ in our sufferings, there's conformity uh, to Christ in in, in our moral nature, but there's also conformity to Christ in glory. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21, the Apostle Paul again says this, Philippians 3 21, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul puts it another way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, this is a reference to Adam. In one sense, we bear the image of Adam. We are made in the image of God, but we bear the image of Adam. The effects of Adam's fall upon us. But notice what Paul goes on to say. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly this bearing of the image of the heavenly has reference to Jesus Christ in his glorified state. That's why in this whole passage in Romans chapter 8, where does it end up? For me, he did foreknow, he did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many uh, brethren, and whom he justified, those he sanctified, those he, uh, those he called, those he called, those he, uh, those he justified, those he justified, those he, those he sanctified, those he sanctified, those he glorified. In other words, your salvation ends in glory whereby you share in the glory of Jesus Christ himself. And you're fitting out for that is here in this world, here in our present calling. So this is what we see by way of how God is conforming. So the three acts, foreknowledge, predestination, sanctification, or conforming us to the image of Christ. Now, what's the purpose of all this? And this is really where the thrust and the emphasis of this entire sermon is at. What is the purpose of all this? The purpose, once again, is found at the end of verse 29. Look at verse 29 again. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And this is the key. Notice the that, that purpose clause. That's what that little word, that, is doing. It's pointing out the purpose of everything that's being said. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The whole idea is this. God's intention in salvation is to give exaltation and honor to the Son. It really is. Yes, your salvation is very meaningful to God Almighty. Your participation in all the realities of sanctification and glorification very significant to God. But God's primary, God's primary purpose in one sense is that His Son be exalted. And in the church that he be given preeminence and priority. That's why you know the passage in, in Colossians 1. It's a, in one sense, it's a parallel passage. Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses, uh, verses 15 uh, through 18. Again, Paul is using this, uh, the terminology of firstborn once again. And he, and he says this here in, in, in Colossians, uh, Colossians 1, starting with verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? the firstborn of every creature. Now this is reference to Jesus Christ and his priority over creation. It's not a reference to Jesus Christ as being created. It's his reference to Jesus Christ as having priority over creation. That's the point. He goes on in verse 16. For by him were all things created. This is why he has the priority. Things that are in heaven, that are earth, that are visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Again, the priority. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Again, priority. But notice this, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. This title, belonging to Jesus Christ as firstborn, is a title that is specifically designed to bring preeminence to Jesus Christ in the church. And I ask you the question, Does Jesus Christ have preeminence in our church? Will Jesus Christ have preeminence Mm -hmm. in our church? Will we work for that? Will we strive for that? It's my hope and my prayer that that becomes in one sense a theme of Mossett Baptist Church. That Christ be made preeminent. That Christ be truly understood as the firstborn among many brethren. But there is one more thing in this passage of scripture that we have to understand. And I can't emphasize enough. I should be going on more and more about the preeminence of Christ and exalting Christ and all of this. I want you to see that is the main thrust of the passage of scripture. But there's something else in this passage of scripture in verse 29 that I want you to see. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. My brothers and sisters understand this. That in salvation God's ultimate design is to bring glory to his son exaltation to his son, but also elevation to his redeemed people. You and I, brethren of Jesus Christ, you and I who were once dead in trespasses and sins, you and I who once loved sin more than righteousness, you and I who were once stained with all of our defilement and all of our unholiness, you and I who were worse than the dreads of the earth, are now made the brothers of Jesus Christ. Christ exalted and his people elevated. You see, in the church of Jesus Christ, this wonderful thing that has taken place that we know is salvation. But the beauty of salvation and the glory of salvation and the honor of salvation in this particular church and at this particular moment is that you and I had that great privilege and great honor in the face of an unbelieving world, to say, Jesus Christ is Lord over all. My brothers and sisters, give to Christ the preeminence that is his. Live in such a way that you see him as exalted over all. And when challenged by the difficulties of this life, understand that all these things are working to that good of being more and more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.